This is The Ethicist, a podcast from the New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, novelist and writer in residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions Times Magazine readers send in every week. And let me introduce my co-hosts, Anthony Appia, teaching philosophy at New York University. Welcome, Anthony. Good to be here. And Kenji Yoshino, teaching law at New York University. Hello, Kenji. Hi, Amy. And we're going to tackle several letters, including the favorite family game of I've Got a Secret and You Don't, Genuinely Conflicting Goods, and The Power of Belief. Let's dive into our first question. My uncle's daughter texted this message to me a few days ago. You didn't hear this from me and pretend this conversation didn't take place. My dad went to the hospital this morning in an ambulance with a heart attack. My mom told me not to tell anyone, saying this is dad's news to tell, but I thought you would want to know. Whatever you do, please don't tell your mom, my uncle's sister. My uncle Jack and I are very close, so I understand why the daughter would think I would want to know. Her telling me this news when she was asked not to is her own ethical problem to resolve. However, now knowing this information put me in a very awkward position and created several questions for which I would like your advice. Should I tell my 82-year-old mother of her 70-year-old brother's health crisis because she surely would want to know this tidbit of info? Or should my allegiance be with my uncle's family and honor their wishes not to tell my mother? How do we react when we're officially told the news of the heart attack? Do we pretend not to know anything happened? To me, we're lying, and that in itself is unethical. (laughs) It's hard to know where to start with families. Um, This kind of thing that I, if I recall from my training, is often known as triangulation, (laughs) in which um, I tell you and make sure that you don't tell her, even though she told me and told me not to tell you, that kind of setup. There are a couple of things in the letter that really struck me, one was you're referring um, to your cousin as your uncle's daughter. And the other was the phrase, this tidbit of info that your mother would like to have, your 82-year-old mother. There's no suggestion that having the information would be overwhelming or health-threatening for your 82-year-old mother. What you say is that she would surely want to know this tidbit of information. If you really only regard it as a tidbit, you might want to just keep your mouth shut and not say anything more about it. If you think that your mother's going to be very upset with you, you have to weigh that. Your cousin has already betrayed your uncle and aunt by telling you about his illness. She wants you to honor her betrayal by not telling your mother who you think would like to have this information. And I'm not sure why both your aunt and your uncle feel this way about their information, uh, about that information in my family. Everybody feels that they have a right to know (laughs) as much as possible, as soon as possible, and possibly, you know, the cell number of the doctor. Um, your Your cousin told you for a reason. She wanted you to know. She may have even wanted you to spill the beans to the rest of the family while feeling that she, having been directly ordered not to, could not spill the beans. My very first step would be to contact your cousin and ask why the secrecy is necessary and when it's going to be lifted. I wonder what you guys think. 
Well, I do think that if someone tells you something while revealing that they've been told not to tell you, they're not in a very good position to complain if you then make the same judgment that all things considered, the information is owed to somebody. Um, and as you said, Amy, uh, there's no suggestion anywhere in here that um, it would cause any harm to your mother uh, to tell her, to, to the mother to tell her about this. And I think that um, this I, my own view is this person has a responsibility to his relationship with his mother uh, that is uh, very important and that if she would feel let down by the later discovery that he knew all along and hadn't told her, I would think I would give that a lot of weight. Part of the reason here is that um, I don't share the, the mother's judgment that the medical condition is, as she said, his to tell. It seems to me that at least in a family in which people are texting each other in this sort of way and keeping track of each other's behavior, this is a, this is a, this is a group, this is a social group that's got a shared life. And um, I think that they're entitled, they're, they're not entitled to know, you know, which, uh, which artery of the, of the heart it is or uh, what the name is of the doctor or, or whether he likes his nurses. But they are allowed to know that he's in hospital and he's sick and that, and that the family... It's appropriate for the family at this point to gather around. And I think, um, I just think the mother's judgment is mistaken. But this may just be that I was raised in a place, I was raised <laughs> in West Africa. And I have to tell you that if I'd kept this from my mother because a cousin asked me to, uh, the whole family would have been appalled uh, by being kept out of the loop. This is not the sort of information uh, that I think, if you have an ongoing family relationship, uh, you can parcel out in this sort of way. No, the question actually, you're right. I mean, there's something about the frame of the question that did make me wonder about where the lines and alliances and relationships are in the family. Right. And that may be something that we're not quite grasping because I think if if the letter writer is close to the mother, I might say to the cousin, cousin, I got to tell you, I can't keep this from my mother. I'm sorry. And I would give her a day to maybe to work it out with her own parents, with the aunt and uncle. No, I think, and the, the, the telltale signs that you identified in the writing of the letter did seem to me to suggest that there's more going on here than, we're, than we've been told. I know. It's even more interesting than it seems. <laughs> what do you think, Kenji? Uh, I think that, uh, you know, I feel like the secret is unilaterally imposed on the letter writer. And I think there's a big difference between asking someone if they'll hold something in confidence, getting assent to that, and then divulging a secret on the one hand, and then simply telling them a secret on the other and telling them to keep their mouth shut. You know, I think there's a huge difference. So I would say, you know, go to the cousin by all means and say, you know, what is the case for why you shouldn't go talk to your uncle? But even if she says, you know, Let's say she says, I can't really make a good case, but I, you know, gave that information to you in confidence. I don't think that's enough. I think that at that point, you go to the uncle as your second port of call. Given that you say that you're close, you may be able to persuade him to tell your mother. And, you know, if he doesn't, you know, I think you've kind of exhausted your remedies, as lawyers like to say, and you can go ahead and tell your mother yourself. So I really don't feel like you are bound by a confidence that was, again, unilaterally imposed on you. If I say to Anthony, like, you know, keep this a secret, you know, a meteor is about to, you know, crash into this building, you know, I don't think that Anthony is required to keep that as a secret. Right. Yeah, I, I like the idea of the first protocol is the cousin, the second protocol is the uncle, and then you are basically free to do what you feel is best for your own familiar relationships. And also... My experience is when someone 
tells you something in this kind of a family network, they are not unaware of your other relationships to other people in the family. Exactly, right. So I feel like there was also a big nudge from that text. (laughs) All right, let's dive into the next letter. I hold the power of attorney for my aunt. She is quite elderly and is not competent, although she is physically healthy. She lives in her own apartment without any other family member, but requires round-the-clock care because of her dementia. I use a home care agency for my aunt's nighttime care when she is usually asleep, but employ two very dedicated home aides, who are sisters, for her daytime care. These aides are extremely patient and tolerant and are irreplaceable. They have worked for my aunt for many years, even before I became their employer. In other words, I did not hire them, but I have continued to employ them for the past three years after I activated my power of attorney. The ethical problem is that the two sisters are undocumented. Therefore, they insist on being paid off the books. I have offered to pay all taxes on their behalf, not just employee wage withholding, but all taxes that they would have to pay the IRS at the end of the year over and above wage withholding. Also, I would pay their Social Security taxes and other required benefits of employment. However, the two sisters, because of their undocumented status, state that they will quit if I attempt to report or pay any of their income to the IRS or pay any of their taxes and benefits. The estate has multiple beneficiaries under my aunt's will, and those beneficiaries conceivably could resort to legal action if the estate becomes embroiled in an IRS dispute as a result of a tax audit. Any ethics advice or insights you can offer would be deeply appreciated. Right. So I think that this is a really obviously difficult question because there are strong interests on both sides. I guess the first thing that I would want to know is whether you're right on the law and whatever the law is, whether or not the sisters are making the correct assessment uh, based on full knowledge of what the law would require. So let's say that the law says uh, you can legally retain them in this way, and you present that to them, that might actually change their calculus and uh, quell their fears about what will happen to them if they agree to the arrangement that you're offering them. If they reject your, I think, extremely generous offer after um, you present them with full information, I think that you have to let them go, you know, and... I think that in part because you're a lawyer and you're an officer of the court and you should be obeying the law. Uh, But I also think that you make the matter much easier when you say that you are a trustee for this estate, Uh, not for legal liability reasons, but simply because you're a fiduciary uh, as a trustee to these other beneficiaries. And so if you get hit by a huge tax penalty, by the IRS because you have violated the law. It's not just your own interests that you are eating into, but also their interests. And so as a trustee, you have to hold yourself to that higher standard. Yeah, I, um, I do agree that this is, a, this is a hard case because at the heart of it is obviously the question, can I, in an ethically permissible way, continue to uh, maintain this uh, very good circumstance for my aunt? Uh, She's cared for by people who, uh, whom she recognizes to the extent that she can recognize people and trusts and who understand her and, and who are kind and thoughtful and treat her well. 
and you have responsibilities to them because they have been kind and loyal to your aunt, uh, as, as, of course, you have primary responsibility to your aunt. But you have other responsibilities too, uh, including responsibilities to yourself. It seems to me that, especially as a lawyer, uh, you're not requ- you couldn't be required ethically to put yourself in a position where you're essentially putting your whole professional standing at stake, especially because, given the amounts of money that we're talking about here, it just seems to me that one of your premises is false. Um, it just can't be true that you can't find someone who can, who can achieve what you want which is to allow your uh, aunt to remain for the rest of her life in her own home, being well cared for. Um, I don't myself think that the fact that these people are in an illegal situation um, and that that, that they've broken the law um, makes it any uh, more easy for you morally to, uh, to expose them to the to the fact that you're going to lose them their jobs, because I think the background framework of the immigration rules here is so unjust that it carries very little weight uh, that they are in breach of them. But um, if if I thought that they were in a situation where the laws that they're breaking were just and that they were being fairly treated by them, I would think that would give further weight to the thought that you can't uh, continue with the current situation. I mean, I agree with with all of what you both said. I mean, I hope that... Um, a good lawyer is consulted and that the answer makes it possible for you to pay the taxes and not have these people deported. And that would be a happy ending for you and your mother and for these two excellent aides. But if it's not possible, I think you're going to have to explain that you plan to pay the taxes if they continue. And they have said that they will quit. And if they continue to feel this way, that is, they quit. I hope you give them some generous severance and great letters of reference, and you start looking immediately for their replacement, and try, if you can, to have the new people overlap with the old for a few days, since it's going to be a difficult transition, as most things are for your aunt, and you should be able to find good and compassionate aids for the salary that you are offering. I also think it's great that you value your aunt, and you value the aides who are doing this difficult and demanding work. On to our last question. I am a pediatrician, sometimes approached by families wanting to avoid immunizing their children. As a former immunologist, I know that vaccines are both extremely valuable at preventing disease and very, very safe. I have strong feelings about wanting to protect the children in my practice from exposures to disease carried by unimmunized children. Though fully vaccinated kids in my waiting room would be at little risk, the same is not true for infants and immunosuppressed children. Is it unethical for me to refuse to care for children whose parents refuse to vaccinate them against diseases that they might pass on to others in the office? I am lucky to work in a community where there is a choice of pediatric providers. Would the ethical position be different if I were the only game in town? I think that the key here uh, to thinking about this is to grasp that a relationship between a pediatrician and a family has to be one of trust and mutual respect. That's uh, both ethically required, it's also medically required. (laughs) It's only going to work as a medical relationship if uh, if the children and their parents in your care are ones whom you trust and respect and who trust and respect you. So if you have explained to these people and explained why you have made the judgment you have about the immunizations that they ought to have, and they don't trust you, they don't think that you are 
have come to the right all things considered judgment. I think, especially as you say, because you're in a place where there are plenty of pediatricians, you are free to say to them, look, I don't think we can have the kind of relationship that you need to have, given that you you think I, you don't trust me on this. You ask if it would make any difference if you were the only game in town. Well, yes, I think it would, because uh, if you were the only game in town, then you surely think, as I do, that children shouldn't be without a pediatrician and you're the only option. But you need to be clear to them that you think that they're making a mistake and that they're imposing on you extra costs because you're going to have to take special care to keep uh, their children separate uh, from the others. You know, there are a lot of studies uh, about the way in which certain kinds of beliefs seem to be immune to facts. and. I agree with everything you said. I think that as a pediatrician, he wants to protect children. I'm sure the parents see themselves as wanting to protect their children um, and that the family doesn't see or sees and doesn't care or pretends that it's not true or even believes that these are not the facts, that their choice not to vaccinate puts other children, infants and immunosuppressed children at risk. And like you, I'm, I'm glad there are other pediatricians in town because if there were not, I would feel that the pediatrician has to explain to the family that they really should find another pediatrician, even if they have to drive a little longer, whom they can trust because that's essential, and that this pediatrician will continue to advise and implore them to change their minds until they find another pediatrician, and that they will not be allowed under any circumstances to share the waiting room with other patients at any time. And that, somehow it seems to me that that physical separation might be persuasive that they either need to find another pediatrician or need to change their stance. Uh, So I think I take a slightly softer stance than both of you. Uh, Let me start out by saying that I agree with the premise, which is that those who refuse vaccinations are behaving irrationally. Uh, So let me put that card on the table. Um, But I'm not sure that the physician would be offering the best care to the children of those individuals by firing them as patients. So one medical ethicist puts it as follows, that they're vaccine haters, which he contrasts with vaccine hesitators. So you might actually be losing out on the chance to change minds if you accept the parents' preferences as fixed. So I think both of you seem to assume that the doctor has repeatedly made attempts with these uh, patients to change their minds. And and maybe that's the case. Uh, but, you know, oftentimes people are persuaded over time precisely because they're in these dialogic um, relationships with their physicians. And so that how they feel about something at a certain point in time might be um, different, you know, if across time, so six months, a year, precisely because they do uh, establish a relationship of trust with the physician. I also want to say that I don't think this is so isolated, that I think there are many patients who are non-compliant with all kinds of things their doctors tell them to do. So, you know, I just wonder if um, there are just not more narrowly tailored means, like isolating the children, as as Amy said, to safeguard the uh, immunosuppressed children or other infants. Um, but something that's more narrowly tailored than denying the children in question care altogether. Right. Well, except that it's it's not a matter of denying them care. It's just refusing it yourself on the grounds that you don't think you can have the right kind of relationship with the parents. 
and I think that uh, I mean, there's a difference, it seems to me, between the case of um, children uh, in the care of parents uh, and the case of other patients, where uh, where the the, the 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 pediatrician is, as it were, entering into a, a relationship which means he and the parents are sharing responsibility for the health of the child, in a way in which I think uh, a doctor dealing with an adult. Uh, patient is um, uh, <laughs> has more reason to respect the autonomy of of the, the the autonomous decisions of the patient because they're decisions about him or herself, not decisions about a third party. I agree with that, and I think the point about the vaccine haters and the vaccine hesitators is a really important one. And I am sort of assuming that the pediatrician would have made the argument repeatedly. But this. Um, is, uh, just to play devil's advocate, Amy uh, and, and Anthony, both of you, uh, when we say that they're alternative um, pediatric providers, right, so this is a fact that is presented, um, but if all of us had our way, what would the, what would the best outcome nationwide, community-wide be? Would we say that the good thing would be to have a spread of pediatric providers, some of whom are willing not to um, vaccinate children and some of whom are? Or based on our common belief, all three of us are saying this is completely irrational, is the better thing to say no pediatrician should provide this? Because it strikes me that saying that there's an alternative suggests that um, you're, you're all right with people um, behaving in completely irrational, you know, refusing on a completely irrational grounds and, and physicians accepting that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a it's a challenge to think about what this would mean as a universalized policy. If every if every pediatrician followed our advice here, uh, they would they, then there would be pediatricians in towns with lots of pediatricians, every one of whom would be denying these parents uh, care. And uh, so I think that what that shows is that the situation is a bit more complicated than just um, other other pediatricians. Um, the, the question is, what kind of care can they get? elsewhere. Uh, and that's a question that I think pediatricians need to think about, not just in, in the particular case of parents who make bad decisions about the vaccination, uh, but in general, um, you might think, well, um, you know, I'm a better pediatrician, I'm the best pediatrician in town, or I'm the best pediatrician in town for this kid, because this kid has some disease that I'm an expert on or something, nothing to do with vaccination. Uh, and I might feel, well, all things considered, um, while I want it to be clear to these people that I think they're doing the wrong thing, um, my judgment is that the best thing for the, in the interest of the, of the dis child is to, is to accept them as, as patients. Yeah, I mean, I feel even more strongly than that. I mean, I, I think that there is evidence. That's not a minor thing. Um, and I think that when Kenji says sort of, well, what's our stance about this sort of universally? I feel very strong that people saying, I believe such and such in the face of all scientific and medical evidence, and I would like to proceed to arrange the care for my children on the basis of that is a terrible thing. I realize that we actually can't stop that from happening. We could stop it from happening, but but in a way that brings out what's really interesting about the structure of this situation and this case, uh, which is that we have decided 
to give primary caretaking responsibility for children to parents. And, uh, and there are cases where we will step in and override their judgment, and there are cases where we aren't. We've decided, apparently, in our society that the vaccine case isn't one of the cases where we will step in and override, the, that is, have forced vaccination of children against their parents' will, because we think uh, that while the vaccinations are an extremely good thing, not just for the children but for the population as a whole, um, it's more important that... Um, we allow people to have primary parents to have primary responsibility uh, to, to make the big choices about their children um, in this case. So I, I think there is a genuine conflict here between two thoughts. Yes. One thought is we should do what's best for the child. The other is that we've let we, we've organized society and that we're in favor of organizing society in a way in which primary decision making in relation to children is made by parents. And that's it for the ethicists. If you'd like to send us your ethical quandary or comment on the show, you can reach us at ethicists at nytimes.com. If you'd like to leave a voicemail question for us to answer on the show, the number is 212-556-7070. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes. Our producer is Carrie Hillman, and the music is by the band Broke for Free. For Anthony Appia and Kenji Yoshino, I'm Amy Bloom. We'll talk to you next week on The Ethicists.